Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 2. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals and it takes you beyond medical knowledge, talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe. I'm a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England, and I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we'll be discussing topics that are often perceived as taboo, or which are not often talked about. And today we're talking about generational differences between doctors, asking whether this is worsening workforce issues within the NHS. I'm sure I'm not the only person who's been told by an older doctor, older doctor, that our generation don't have the same resilience or strength as those doctors who worked 100 hour weeks back in the good old days. That complaints about feeling burnt out are because none of us have the same pride in being doctors that those that have gone before us. But is this the case? Or are we demanding more for ourselves because we think our patients deserve more? I'm really glad to be joined by our panel today. Aisha, I'm going to start by asking you to introduce ourselves. You're now a familiar face on Doctor Informed. Hi, Clara. Thanks for having me again. Um, I do feel like I'm um, always gatecrashing these um, podcasts, but um, hi, everyone. Um, so my name's Aisha Ashmore. I am an Obsangani Reg in the East Midlands. Um, and yeah, that's me. Lovely. I also have the absolute pleasure to be joined by the BMJ's very own Nikki Nabavi. Uh, Nikki's one of our previous editorial scholars at the BMJ, and she's going to be representing our Gen Z audience today. As a final year medical student, she definitely has skin in the game. Nikki, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, thank you, Clara. Yes, as Aisha talked a bit about gate crushing. I feel like I'm gate crushing the adult <laughs> podcast. I'm normally on the children's table at Sharp Scratch, but. Um... As Clara said, I'm a final year medical student at the University of Manchester and I'm the previous editorial scholar from the BMJ. Thank you so much for joining us. And last but certainly not least, I would like to introduce you to Alistair Monroe. Yes, we do have the same surname and yes, he is my dad. As someone who worked for the NHS for over 42 years and has now retired, we felt he might have a good overview and be able to share some reflections on whether the good old days really were the good old days. Dad, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, yes, I'm a retired, very much retired uh, clinical oncologist. And uh, I'm Clara's dad. And that's my only <laughs> qualification for being here. Not the only qualification. You are also incredibly old, which makes you qualified to talk about the good old days. Antediluvian. <laughs> Those who listened to our first episode in the new series will know that we always start this episode um, by talking about what's being talked about on the wards, what's been in the news or what's important on the great and the good medical Twitter. Uh, anyone seen anything that they want to kick off talking about this week? Um, I, might, I might chip in here, um, Clara, because I guess in the last few days there's been a lot of drama on Twitter about the current Royal College of Physicians um, statement from the the president um, suggesting that junior doctors shouldn't be striking, which was then followed by a very quick um, statement online to suggest that they would support um, the junior doctor strike, which um, was very conflicting, I think, and has caused Mm. quite an uproar. I wonder what people thought about that. Yeah, Nikki, as somebody who's still at medical school, who 
potentially may or may not be involved in the strikes. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to see it all unfold. It was all over my Twitter timeline when I woke up this morning. Um, I think, oh God, it it's sad to see comments like that in the mainstream media, especially because I think there's a lot of people who aren't from a medical background that will be hearing rumours of a doctor's strike, which can often feel controversial for members of the public. Um, and for them to hear a senior doctor say or suggest that they may not support that. I mean, yeah, it, it's quite sad for us, I think, as juniors or students to to not feel as though we, we may have the support from our, our seniors if it does kind of result in us needing to strike. Mm. So this story is... Um about Dr. Sarah Clark, who's the RCP London president. Uh, She gave an interview to The Times, which is obviously a national newspaper, uh, and uh, effectively her comments were that um, the strikes could significantly impact patient safety. Um, I think last time, you know, strikes were sort of brought up, my feeling always is, what is the public's perception of this going to be? You know, actually, is this going to cause more issue because people don't understand why we're striking because there is a lot of misconception from the public about it um and I think there has been a lot of you know negative pushback to her comments because she put them out on such a public platform it's especially difficult because you you mentioned there about patient safety and how that was her kind of angle Mm. whereas I think all the discussions that I've seen prior to now and obviously that's probably coming from a certain like the audience that I subscribe to, I guess, of people who probably have more like like-minded views to myself or other um, other students and junior doctors. But the angle I've always kind of seen is that the reason you, we would strike is for patient safety mm. because of the kind of working conditions not reflecting safe safe environments. Mm. Alistair, you've seen a few strikes in your in your years. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I go back to 1975, which was the year I qualified, and it was the year the junior doctors went on strike. And interestingly, the consultants had gone on a work to rule just before the junior doctors uh, started uh, taking industrial action. And so we didn't have the problem of uh, consultants, by and large, telling us we shouldn't go on strike. Although there was a very strange letter to the BMJ written by four London hospital consultants, which said, and please forgive me here because I really think this is a classic non sequitur. It said you could be struck off the register for having sexual relationships with a patient, but you wouldn't be struck off if you withdrew your labor. And the implication being that uh, going on strike was worse than having sexual relationships with the patient and that you should be struck off for going on strike. But (sighs) all of us who were in Scotland at the time just sort of said, well, that's just typical London nonsense. Let's just forget (laughs) about it. Um, There was an interesting... I was thinking about this because I, I could have gone on strike in 75, but I didn't. And one of the reasons I didn't was I was lucky enough to be trained by that generation of consultants who had gone through the Second World War. So my (laughs) boss at the time had spent 36 hours standing at an operating table dealing with the casualties from the Battle of El Alamein. So he had done that 
how could I go on strike is my question. I think this is such a good platform and I always want to move straight into the meat of the rest of our episode because that that narrative that you've just told I think is so much like what is is peddled when we think actually I want to finish at the time that I was meant to finish and then you think oh well my my boss used to work 100 hour week so I'm not allowed to do you not I mean that was in a battlefield do you not think that's slightly different well I think it had to do with the concept of uh, service and uh, not working to contract. Mm. I mean, mm. the, the dispute in 75 was about the contract. It was about the fact that your basic working week was 80 hours. But if you worked to 120, as most people did, your 40 extra hours were reimbursed at one third of your base rate. That's mm. what the dispute was about. Um, rightly or wrongly. I think that um, a lot of this um, issue with the fact that the statement has come out is the colleges are not meant to have a view about strike action. Um, I I don't know if that was kind of what you were thinking about when you were reflecting on this, Aisha, because I I know that that, that's where a lot of people have been coming into this from. It's not so much what people's opinion is, it's just the fact that somebody that's meant to be impartial was going to a national newspaper and, you know, putting their views out there, which are going to be lapped up by the general public. Yeah, and I guess, I know that colleges are meant to be impartial, but they do have to represent the kind of views of their members. And I think that the view that was portrayed was very much maybe a personal view and didn't actually take into account the views of the majority of members mm. um, of that college. And I think that, in a way, I don't know if I should say this, but I I feel that it it could like it could influence a lot of um, a lot of not only the public but also the junior doctors and and the consultants um, to to maybe question the views that they may have come come up, come upon by themselves if they feel that the college view is actually not to support a strike, mm. um, and so it, it's it it makes it um, almost I think. A little selfish to 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 put that out in the public. Mm, mm. I ent- I entirely agree. It, it it is no part of a royal college's role and the president of the college's role in particular to act uh, as if they were a trade union. Mm. They're not. They're a professional body. It's an entirely different thing, and it's completely out of order. Can we move on to the topic of the Oxford comma? Because I am, I have been so excited to talk about this all week. The Oxford comma gate, as it has been um, hashtagged, is that Theresa Coffey, the new health secretary, uh, one of her first sort of actions in post is to send out this thing about how we have to not be jargonistic, fine, agree, um, but also that we must um that we must not use the oxford comma um which obviously a lot of doctors are like we've got a 6.8 million waiting list we've got 135,000 unfilled posts we've got the biggest workforce crisis and we're talking about the oxford comma um i hate the oxford comma i almost lost my best friend in not i didn't kill her but there was a big big argument we nearly never spoke again she loves the oxford comma i hate it we had a massive argument on lner train from newcastle to london which nearly ended our friendship so 
I believe that the Oxford comma should be abolished. That's fine. Why is that the health secretary's first move? Anybody got any feelings about why the Oxford comma is what we're focusing on, given everything else that's going on at the moment? I have feelings about your feelings about the Oxford comma, because I love the Oxford comma. (laughs) I think it's really necessary and it provides clarity. Well, So, I mean, it enraged me even more. Well, you know, we we have to represent balance on this podcast. I'm really (laughs) glad that we have the for and against the Oxford comma party (laughs) on here today. It's a BMJ podcast. BMJ style uses the Oxford comma. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's a distraction technique and PR because mm. y- y- there's so many issues and there's so many changes that are happening, not just within health, but within, I guess, the whole government at the moment and the policies, that maybe it is um, a-, a distraction technique to get people talking about about the new health secretary rather than focusing on the policies currently. I mean, we've had a lot of bombshells in the last few days. Maybe um, there will be some coming our way for health. I mean, the sense I have is that uh, she's uh, using the Emperor Nero's playbook, which is you play the fiddle while Rome burns. <laughs> yeah, which I suppose is just a very articulate way of talking about her using the Oxford comma as a distraction technique, right? Yes. As interesting as this has been, uh, we could talk about medicine in the media all day. Um, but I think we should move on to the meat of this podcast. Um, and we're going to do that um, just after this message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know better than anyone the ups and downs that hospital doctors face today. 125 years ago, we were started by doctors for doctors. And that same doctor-to-doctor experience still sets us apart in supporting our members. We go above and beyond the NHS scheme that only covers you for damages from negligence claims, giving you the right to request assistance if your clinical practice is called into question by the GMC or your employer. We can help with responding to and resolving patient complaints and our host of risk management resources help you stay on top of your game. Then there's our 24-7 medico-legal advice line, which you can call as many times as you like, without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. We can do all of this because we're a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation where every decision we make is to benefit our members. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org UK. Research has shown that patients who prepare themselves both physically and mentally before surgery have better outcomes, and patients who are well-informed have better compliance. Speak to CDW about BeagleBox, an app for Apple iPad that provides entertainment, aerobic brain games and information, customised for individual patients, allowing them to engage with the treatment process, empowering them with control of details like room functions and meal choices, and entertaining them to reduce anxiety. Already in use by 45 institutions, BeagleBox from CDW is the bedside companion that transforms the patient experience. Okay, so back to the show. So 
This is a really meaty topic. We're talking about differences between, I suppose, both external generational differences. So in our daily life, you know, you just need to open up Instagram to look at all of the memes they have about boomers and millennials and snowflakes and then you're taking that in the context of healthcare and the fact that we have a very you know very much a struggling NHS at the moment um so I think there's everyone's gonna have a huge amount to say um but dad Alistair um I thought it might be helpful if you could start by describing your career path what your working conditions were like as a junior doctor and some of the changes that you saw come about during your long stretch as a doctor so basically, you want me to do 40 years in 40 seconds. Well, Perfect. Yeah. I always like a challenge. Um, <laughs> so uh, as I said earlier, I qualified in uh, 75 and immediately confronted uh, people who were training me, consultants and senior registrars, who told me I had it easy, that uh, life was cushy compared with what they had had and they'd worked in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, and they'd been allowed out once in six months, and that was to do their laundry. Uh, so there, there is always this sort of hyperbolic attitude to intergenerational differences. I mean, it was happening in 75, and it's happening in 2022. So you have to just acknowledge that that's how old people treat younger people. And it's just the rule. And you just move on past it. Um, we, we had fun. I have to say, we worked hard. We had fun. Uh, there was an esprit de corps there. There was a sense of everybody pulling in the same direction. Um, I was thinking about this earlier, and uh, it, it's quite strange that at the time I qualified, we spent 4% of our gross national product on health. Nowadays, it's about double that, it's about 8%. So proportionally in terms of the national cake, we're, we're spending more on health than we did. But what also has happened over that time is that objective measures of social inequality have increased hugely. And if you ask me what the difference is, what there are, many differences for your generation to my generation, but I would say that one of the major differences was that because social inequalities have increased, the stress on staff and the strain on the NHS has increased. The founder of cell pathology, Rudolf Virchow, who was born just over 200 years ago, pointed out that medicine was simply the practice of politics on a grand scale. So we've always known that there's been this interrelationship. And so what I think your generation is dealing with are the discontents of a society that is discontented in a way that wasn't when I qualified, and which is why my job as a junior doctor was so much reward, more rewarding than your job is now when I was thinking about this earlier, um, I thought we couldn't really talk about this without acknowledging the fact that when I finished school and I was thinking about what I wanted to do, you said to me, 
you can do whatever you like and I will support you, but just don't do medicine. Um, and as the eldest of four children, you are, I'm the only one you haven't succeeded in convincing not to do medicine um, because here I am. But I, I suppose I've never really asked you, what, why did you say that? Why didn't you want me to be a doctor? Because I knew you wouldn't have as much fun as I had. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's a good answer. And I'm going to gear change to to Nikki here because Nikki is at the other end of the spectrum, somebody that's about to qualify as a doctor. Nikki, do you have fun? Yes, definitely. I, I think there's definite moments that you think, okay, this is why I'm doing this or you still have I mean as a student sometimes we still have free time to enjoy and have fun with our friends and the people around us and the people that medicine allows you to meet but having said that I do feel as though it can sometimes be quite demotivating when I mean you hear everyone complaining and complaining rightly so and not that people shouldn't complain and I, th- I think it's really important that people are kind of voicing their concerns but it can just feel so demotivating when you're kind of trying to motivate yourself to revise for finals get through these hurdles um, and then you sort of think why am I actually doing this if it's not worth it on the other end and I, I don't know if it's as I'm getting closer to qualifying or, and because like a lot of my friends are now foundation doctors or whether because I, I feel as I'm hearing a lot more of the kind of horror stories and things not being great or people actually not really necessarily enjoying themselves after putting in however many years of hard work and now kind of in the first few months of F1 thinking oh god like what am I what am I doing Mm. do you think that the internet social media the way we share things the way we talk about things do you think that has a role in in platforming some of that negativity? I suppose that's a bit of a loaded question because that's something that I often think. I, I do yeah. get your point in the, in the sense that it's so much easier to kind of go into a group think situation of, oh my God, mm. it's so awful all the time. But I also think that having grown up in a bit of a medical family like yourself, Clara, um, it was very different. Um, so um, um, maybe I shouldn't say this, sorry, Baba, but um, um, back, back in the day, I remember as a child being dropped off in the mess for in the doctor's mess for kind of babysitting um, because there was always someone there um, and there was this great sense of camaraderie and everyone mm. would pitch in no matter what it was if it was a medical problem or if it was a non-medical problem like oh god I've got to go to theatre but I have absolutely no childcare um, mm. and you know I read this really um, really good letter actually in the BNJ recently about a doctor who was kind of reflecting on you know working as a junior doctor in the 90s and how different the the kind of workplace environment was so Mm. as uh, even though there's all of this um, we maybe we do kind of amplify our negativity there's a lot of the positive elements that are now missing Mm. Mm. I actually I, I definitely agree Nikki you're also from a medical family what do you think yeah, it's, I, I, I do definitely agree with you, Aisha. And I think that it does, yeah, I think, Clara, your question was whether it platforms the negativity. And it definitely feels like that sometimes when you kind of log into Twitter and all you see is kind of negative things one after another. But I, I do think that there is also positives to it and even positives to it amplifying the negativity because I think it's allowing people to 
kind of really understand the issues and really discuss them and pick them apart, reflect on them, and often can lead to change Mm. and lead to kind of changes in people's practice or changes or people knowing about the right avenues to go down to ask for change. Or I mean, you often see people tweeting about their sort of pay slips being wrong. And then someone will reply being like, oh, you just need to email this person or you just need to do this thing. Make sure you ring student finance. They shouldn't be taking your um, loan repayments out until like April of next year or whatever it is. Well, I always see people kind of giving each other advice. And so there is definite positives to it as well. Aisha, you're yeah. similar level to me. And um, so Nikki maybe hasn't had the experience yet of constantly being told that... Um, things were much harder in uh, older registrars and consultants days. Is that something you've ever heard? Oh God, have I ever heard that? It's like, <laughs> it's like the, the daily, the daily like grumble Mantra. from the consultants. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, you get this constant like, oh, trainees nowadays, they just don't want to stay late. They don't want to put the effort in um, this European working time directive. Like how... How is any anyone in a surgical specialty going to make up those hours? How are you going to learn these skills? And I'm sure that's true in um, other specialties as well. And it's and it, and it's very it's very difficult to have this conversation with consultants when actually the entire environment of medicine has changed. There's now mm. like this ecosystem of extremely complex patients with lots of different treatment modalities, which is much more focused on it and there's bigger focus on evidence-based medicine rather than Mm. each consultant doing their own thing and you only and because you work in a team you know exactly what to do because that consultant always does the same thing so there's you know trying to have this conversation a rational conversation with a consultant who might be a bit older um and explain these challenges is is very difficult from a position of um well of less power I guess in that relationship (laughs) Mm. I was actually thinking about this a lot about whether you know the kind of I think one of the things that people often say is harder for our generation okay we do less hours and you know we're very protected and we all moan about burnout and we have well-being days and all the rest of it but I think that one of the challenges even in my short career of sort of eight years of postgraduate medicine that I've seen change is this obsession with algorithms and guidelines and protocols and streaming and things that come from a really good place but actually put this huge amount of pressure on doctors and actually feel like you know you're like well I can't really practice the medicine that I want to practice and that makes my job really really hard um and then I don't really get fulfillment from it and I go home thinking oh well I failed at everything what's the point in going to work um I mean I don't feel like that every day I do enjoy my job but did you see that play out on the sort of on a on a longer scale um perhaps over the course of of your career you know right from the beginning when you started junior doctor to the end when you retired um, yes, I mean, you can call it construction of algorithms or codification, and it, and it comes back again to this question of the mutilated foot, you know, that the evidence you have is not the evidence you need, and the evidence you need is not the evidence you have. That's in a, a sort of abbreviated version. And and the um, idea, uh, the the concept I always had in my own head was that of the mutilated foot, 
In other words, that evidence-based medicine was a shoe of a given size and everybody's foot had to be forced to fit into that shoe. And of course, that's a nonsensical approach to dealing with human beings in all their infinite variety and wonder. You've got an algorithm that will suit the average person, but there is no such thing as an average person. Um, so that's a fundamental intellectual problem that you have. And looking forward over the next 25 years, which is the sort of practice horizon of the other participants in this discussion, the terrifying thing is that algorithms are the uh, substrate really on which artificial intelligence will operate. So you are going to be facing practice in which, you know, it's not that you're having to look up a loose leaf binder to find out what the guidelines are or look them up on the internet. You will be told by an ex so-called expert system or some AI-based thing that this is what you must do. But do you um, not think that we're getting that already, but that AI-based thing is actually patience? Because I would argue that actually patients are a lot more clued up than they used to be. And in particularly in obstetrics, they'll come to me with, you know, a guideline printed out. And if I've not like adhered to that guideline and tried to have a more nuanced approach to managing something, then I get the then I get um questioned and and you know, it's almost like the Spanish Inquisition as to why I haven't um followed this particular guidance and uh, as a result what if there's any complication in my care then you know I'm going to be calling the lawyers and there's going to be some litigation and you know that almost leads to this element of fear that we have to and it takes that kind of you know you, you lose the flexibility in medicine and you lose the ability to be an independent practitioner I think. I think what what you hit on there and it's only just occurred to me as we're having this discussion is that trust is the issue. That the reason that you're worried about being litigated against and the reason that your patient is coming clutching the guideline is that there has to some extent been a breakdown in mutual trust. And, and this is not unique to medicine. You know, this, this if you look across society, you know, you try to do a simple financial transaction and you are immediately assumed to be trying to launder money. You know, your bank doesn't trust you. you nobody trusts anybody else anymore. And obviously it's far beyond the, the ambit of this discussion as to why this might be the case. Um, those of us who practice medicine through the whole of the 1990s, uh, sorry, the 1980s, we would say that this was Margaret Thatcher's legacy. That when she said there was no such thing as society, we all stopped trusting each other. And here we are 30, 40 years later dealing with the consequences. I think the, the other thing that you hit on there, Aisha, which I guess kind of links to that, and maybe it's a bit of a controversial question, but we're always taught shared decision-making is king. That's how we should be doing practice. 
But would it be easier if everyone just trusted us and we practiced paternalistic medicine? Because that does seem to be, you know, how do we balance shared decision-making with trust, with not being paternalistic? I mean, I, I am definitely still working towards that model, but it takes time, right? And it's time that often we don't have. Well, I'll tell you that. I'll tell you the answer to that. It's try taking the part three MRCOG exam. (laughs) 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 Or revising for it. (laughs) Are they like, be paternalistic, but also be uh, interested in shared decision-making, but also... Yes, exactly. And you have 30 seconds to do all of those things in. (laughs) Nikki, I can see you nodding along. Yeah, definitely. I was just thinking about kind of interactions that I've had with doctors and obviously a lot of what I do as a student is kind of take histories and go back and present them and then kind of come up with a management plan with the doctor and you often do see there being a lack of trust kind of both ways and sometimes it's interesting this conversation I've been kind of sitting and taking it all in because something that I've been really thinking about over the past week or so is I've been quite surprised by how much people do trust or like how much people are willing to open up or things like that and I don't know if that's different because as a student you kind of sit and you have a lot more time for the patients and you sometimes kind of can go deeper into things that aren't just their kind of condition or their symptoms um so yeah it's really interesting to hear about how that trust perhaps doesn't quite remain I think that's a good point Nikki because you know relationships take time to develop and I think, you know, with our massively increased workloads, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to develop those relationships and have the time. I mean, I can't remember the, the last time that I had, I had the time to really sit down and, you know, have a proper conversation where I got to know a patient or a person yeah. um, properly. And um, unless, you know, it was something really complex, like the normal, the normal things, the easy things, you don't get the chance to do that, which is often where I think you, you develop those relationships in the first place. Definitely. Definitely. And, and obviously you don't have the time because you're understaffed and there's overworked and it's not a reflection on any one of the doctors or those teams, but it's, it's, it's such a shame because I think that's, I mean, for me, that's my favourite part of medicine at the moment. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite, quite scary, scary to think that that, that might not always, not always be the case. Dad, you are a real people person. And I know, like, I, I want to hear about your time as a consultant as well. But obviously, I think sometimes consultants, especially in clinic, can have a little bit more time. As a junior doctor and a registrar, did you always feel like you had enough time to talk to patients? And did you feel like they trusted you? By and large, yes, unless I was in a particularly shifty mode that day, and then they quite rightly didn't trust me. I I think, you know, looking back, I think it's, uh, you know, and it's really refreshing to hear what I've just been listening to, because it is the greatest privilege that you have as a doctor over your professional career is that people tell you their stories. And that you need the time to listen. And this is the tragedy of Mm. undermanning of a workforce that is inadequate for the demands that are being placed upon it. Because Mm. time with patients, as we've just heard, is the first thing that gets lost. 
what what uh, was interesting to me with you know we we're talking about evidence-based and guidelines earlier and i suddenly remembered that back in 82 83 when i was uh, an oncologist at st mary's in london and uh, well we didn't know it was hiv in those days uh, but it was, i think we just called it aids came along and we didn't really know what was happening, what the etiology was, what the pathogenesis was, what the clinical course was. But patients would A, demand that we spent time with them, and B, they would arrive, in those days it was faxes from California, from San Francisco usually, with all sorts of suggestions. And that was a wonderful experience because it was actually patients and doctors learning together mm. how to look after an illness that none of us had encountered before. And, you know, that there was trust there. Patients were demanding rightly. And it was, as I say, a rare privilege to be able actually to for both patients and doctors to help navigate through a new problem. Um, I, but that, that, as I say, was gross. I mean, would just be impossible, I would imagine, in the modern NHS. I, I just don't see any of you having the time to do that. I think that's also hit on a really good point, because I just made the assumption that when patients are demanding things from us or they're questioning us, that it's because they don't trust us. And actually, sometimes you can demand things and trust your doctors, and that is about working together. Um, do you think that, this is an open question to everybody, one of the things I've heard talked about a lot, especially in the sort of um, background to strike action, um, and into how um, doctors are perceived, um, and why things have changed, people talk a lot about status. Um, it kind of makes me cringe when I think about it because the idea of me going in and being like, everybody give me status, I hate it. But do you think that there has been a, a shift in the in the status of doctors, inverted commas, and how they are perceived by the public, by patients, and by other members of the sort of multidisciplinary team? Well, let's just put it this way. I think back in the day, my dad used to get a locker and I have never, in my working career, managed to secure a locker. So, <laughs> so um, yes, I definitely think there has been a change in status um, within the workplace and um, without it, I guess. Mm. It always comes back to lockers and parking spaces, doesn't it? <laughs> it's such a basic fundamental Honestly. need. That's all we ask for. Interestingly... Well, going back to kind of Twitter and things, there was some discussion today amongst some um, female junior doctors that I follow about when you use the title doctor and whether mm -hmm. you use that kind of just professionally or whether people actually use it in their personal lives as well, when it's appropriate to do so, when they introduce themselves as doctor and then their first name or whether they use their surname, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. kind of ties into the status thing I guess yeah do you need to reinforce your status yeah. or not it always amuses me on the BBC that they have programs introduced by Dr so-and-so or Dr so-and-so and very often they're people with PhDs rather than medical degrees <laughs> real doctors never, never quite sure what that means uh, 
I'm you're talking about parking spaces and lockers. I, I'm of a generation that can remember the doctor's dining room. I want a doctor's dining room. What did what that is, involve? Well, the doctor's dining room was effectively the MDT. They, <laughs> everybody bumped into everybody else and did all the gossiping. And you didn't need social media or Twitter or WhatsApp or anything because you bumped into people and they'd say, I've got this patient on the ward. I've no idea what's going on with them. Would you mind having a look? Or what do you think about this? Or, and there was... There were a lot of discussions there that you simply could not have in an open dining room where you might be sitting at a table with patients' relatives. Mm. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, there have been huge changes in in status within the hospital. Mm. Um, probably for the better. Uh, you know, the sort of doctor in the house, Sir Lancelot, whatever he was, who, you know, I, I mean, there, there were doctors that I knew of who... Not you, just, that's what you're saying, no, not no, you. Well, in the, in the <laughs> Dundee Royal Infirmary in the 1960s, when the professor of medicine did his ward round, it was the registrar's job to go down to the steps at the front of the hospital if it was raining and open the umbrella so that the professor of medicine could get up the steps of the hospital without getting his hair wet. Do you know what? I think I would do that if I could have a locker. <laughs> yeah, I would as well. And if I could have a dining room. <laughs> but, but, but also, I think outside of the hospital, you know, this comes down to pay. Like before, because of these kind of cost of living and real terms pay cuts, our salary is nowhere near, isn't worth as much as what we could afford. So I guess back in the 90s, a doctor could afford a lot more, maybe a nicer house, maybe a nicer car, maybe a, a nice holiday. It just would go a lot further. And so, whereas now, you know, we're struggling, we're struggling to pay um, for, you know, a car parking space, for God's sake, yeah. let alone anything else. So I think that, and I think therefore maybe the perception of doctors um has also changed in the public eye i mean don't get me wrong i think a lot of people still think doctors are the top earners in the country and we don't do very much but i think um <laughs> but i think that there is maybe a different perception when you get to know a doctor and they and you know actually our money doesn't stretch as far that that has changed people's perceptions when, when I was, I was researching, researching this topic, um, I came across uh, an American Medical Association survey um, about, particularly about burnout, um, but also about generational differences. Um, and I can link this in the show notes because I found it a really fascinating read. Um, interestingly, well, I, I suppose expectedly, the rates of burnout were slightly higher in the millennial and Gen Z groups, um, but by no means were they non-existent in the, in the boomer group. Um, what I found most interesting was how people coped with their burnout. So in the millennial and Gen Z group, um, majority of people um, prefer to use exercise as a way of dealing with having a difficult day at work or feeling very burnt out, um, which probably explains why every single anaesthetist I know has a Strava subscription and a very expensive bike. Um, but the boomers tended to, throughout their career, prefer isolating or self-isolation, they call it, um, which Dad probably explains why we used to just bang on the door of your study loads and just not hear from you for hours she was just in there doing self-isolation um 
I was really interested in this because actually um, I think the perception is, oh, you know, millennials and Gen Z have invented mental health and it didn't used to exist. <laughs> Dad, tell me that's not true. Tell me that there were, you know, you guys had difficult times as well and that it's just a different way of dealing with things. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, people dealt with it in all sorts of different ways. Um, one of them was to be was to diversify off into some form of medical administration. Um, so people who couldn't cope uh, became directors of this, that and the next thing. Um, alcohol uh, was another great crutch that was used. I mean, there was a time where it's interesting, attitudes to burnout have changed. I, I was, again, thinking about this earlier. Now. I can remember reading an article in the New England Journal. Whether it was an article or a letter, I can't remember. But this must have been probably in the early 90s. And it was making the point that burnout only happened to people with limited intellectual capacity. <laughs> so that it basically... the. the the thesis was it happened to nurses, but it didn't happen to doctors. Oh my and that was God. in the New England Journal, which um, even at the time amused me greatly. And I thought this is this is just so barking mad that. Um... So, yes, there have been some very peculiar attitudes uh, to burnout over the years and how it's defined and how it's managed. Um, but yes, uh, problems with uh, mental health have always been there. Um, and we, I mean, we know that. You just have to look at the suicide rate in doctors, mm. which has always been higher than the general population, as, as far as I know, since certainly going back into the 50s. Yeah, it's this word resilience that I have quite a problem with now. I think really vividly remember prepping for my medical school interviews and this, I think I'd heard someone on the radio talk about resilience and really thinking, oh God, I need, I need to like make sure I mention in my interviews that I'm really resilient and I kind of mustn't be emotional like I perhaps naturally am um, because I'd have to show that I, I, w I will be resilient to, and enough to be a doctor. But yeah, no, it's definitely a lot more acceptable to vocalise any problems you're having now or like talk about mental health and burnout and all of these things. And I think that is definitely a positive that people feel able to talk about those things and and even the things that have resulted in them feeling like that. And I, I, I always feel it's me with some sort of kind of cautious optimism when people are identifying problems and kind of what what's causing them to feel this burnout and hoping that it will begin to kind of spark change do you think you're resilient Aisha do you think you're always resilient oh god no absolutely not there's been mo many many crying moments of my career um which have been all, all bit and I've had m multiple pats on the back mainly by my long-suffering husband um <laughs> But do you know what? I think I feel like the word resilience has been weaponized. Yeah, <laughs> completely. Definitely. It is. It's like you have to be resilient, but you also like there was that. Uh, what was it, Doctor Glaucom Flecken? Um, sketch on resilience like you have to be resilient yeah. but yet you also have to do this like four hour resilience training in your one app, in your 15 minute lunch break whilst also taking a referral on the phone like 
<laughs> it's just it's just not possible. And in a way, I I like you said, Nikki. It's just a, it's just it, like that word invokes like utter rage in my body because yeah. we now have to then in our um, like so many people now have to fit in resilience training on yeah. top of mandra training. Like it doesn't mean anything anymore. Like I don't see the point in having a you know this great. Um, you know, want to improve well-being when I, when actually what all it's doing is worsening and exacerbating the current situation. Exactly. It just becomes this sort of tick box exercise that people can say that they've thought about it and considered it. And it's like, what, why do I have to, to be able to pass every year of medical school as part of my portfolio? I have to have created a well-being table where I've got at least five different activities that I do for my well-being and attach evidence for all these activities I'm not joking I'm not me. joking so I always have there like photos of me going to my yoga class and like cooking with my friends and whatever <laughs> else that you have to attach as evidence for each well-being activity that I'm doing with evidence that shows I've been doing it throughout the year as well I can't upload it all at the same time I have to have consistent photos of my cooking and yoga classes to prove <sighs> that I'm taking care of my well-being and make sure that they cover the different is it the five steps of well-being it has to be like at least one in each category if I knew what the five steps of well-being were maybe I I mean I I google them once a year to write the table but (laughs) I do think that it is this way though of just I don't know it's like instead of solving the problem send someone on some training like resilience is actually a really important skill to build Mm. as a doctor genuinely but the answer is like oh someone threw a pen at me in an MDT or someone made an inappropriate comment to me (laughs) off you go on your resilience training it's your you know it just puts it back on the individual rather than yeah exactly rather than being like maybe we should just stop throwing pens at trainees <laughs> or like just stop being massive sexist. That'll be fun. But, but this is it though, isn't it? Like it is something so trivial when it comes, when people talk about resilience, it's always something really trivial. For, but when something really bad actually happens and when you actually need some, some support, for instance, if you've got a, you, you, if you've had an incident and you need, you actually need a bit of time off, you need someone to help you write a statement and navigate this awful situation at, oh, oh! At that point, there's no resilience. There's no resilience no. support, is there? So no. you know, I find this all a bit um, farcical, to be honest. Mm. Dad, I'm looking at your face, and I I can tell from your face that you've never been on resilience training. Well, I've never done manual handling or been to a fire lecture. <laughs> Um, and honestly, if I just feel like that is such a good way to end this podcast, because. If I could aspire to never go to another fire lecture again, I feel like I'd probably be better at my job. We said at the beginning that we were going to answer the question about whether the good old days really were the good old days. Um, Dad, I'm going to start by asking you, do, do you think that the good old days were really as good as everyone would have us believe? Um, no. You know... It depends what you mean by the good old days. I mean, whose perspective are we talking from? Doctors or the the patients or the NHS or society as a whole? Um, I I think, uh, I mean, I have enormous uh, sympathy with all the the stuff that the modern generation have to put up with. Um, One of the things that intrigues me is computers, because, I mean, we didn't have computers. They, they didn't really exist. Um, and there is this thing called the solo paradox, 
which uh, Robert Solow was a Nobel Prize winning economist who said, you can see computers everywhere, but in the productivity statistics, by which he meant that computers generated a lot of activity, but it wasn't productive activity. And one of the things I noticed uh, as I moved to the twilight of my career was that I was increasingly sitting at a computer keyboard with my two finger hunt and peck typing skills. Um, <laughs> when, you know, I could have I've seen that and it is true. <laughs> actually, I might have been better employed listening to something a patient had to tell me. Mm. And so, uh, you know, as I say, we, we have the warrant of a Nobel Prize winning economist to tell us that maybe computers in the NHS have not brought all the benefits in terms of outputs and productivity that they should have done. And that that uh, is something that certainly, uh, I would say, needs to be rethought. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, in addition to the, the general complexity you know, the number of tasks that junior doctors are now given per second is far greater than it was in the good old days. Well, so that's probably all we have time for today, but thank you so much um, for joining us, Alistair, Nikki and Aisha. I, uh, I hope to speak to you all soon. Bye thank for you. now. Bye. Bye. We're really keen to hear from our listeners for ideas of future discussions and for reflections on the topics we've discussed today or in the past. So please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share it with the people you know. Tell your friends about it. That really helps people to find the show. If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and you'll be notified when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us. Bye.